0: So I'd like to welcome Sonia Lewis to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barrard. Sonia, thank you for being on the show.
1: Absolutely, thank you. I, I am so humbled to be in spaces and have conversations that sometimes can be challenging, but we find our way somewhere in the middle where we can come to some common ground. I love the title of your show and I just appreciate you for allowing me to be here with you.
0: Well, I'm really excited to hear from you and to share your story with my audience. And you already know, I start my interview with two questions. So if you're ready, let's go. All right. Sonia Lewis, who are you and how did you become who you are today?
1: Ooh. That's always a good question. And I always draw people back to who my parents were and kind of laying layers of things that contributed to what is foundationally part of who I am at the core. So my mom is a Midwestern girl, grew up in Chicago. Her family was impacted uh, by the freeway that was built during the early 50s. And it meant the displacement of black homeowners and they were then ushered into living in the projects. And she swore by the time she was 18 that she would not live in an apartment ever. She would not raise children in, the, in an apartment. And so to my benefit, I've never lived in an apartment. My father is a good old country boy, I call him. He comes from the great state of Texas. He would say it's just that, the great state of Texas. And the two of them met in California. Um, and I really, at the core of me, consider myself an Oakland chick. So if you know anything about the cultural urban settings of like Oakland, Atlanta, New York, Harlem-ish, right? Philly, mm-hmm. that's the feel that I get when I think when I describe the Oakland that I remember. It's quite different now. Um, but what I have been able to understand about myself is that my parents were extremely encouraging. Um, they told me I was the best thing since sliced bread. I believed them. and so mm-hmm. I was really enc- encouraged to do my best at everything I did. I, I never felt as though I had competition with anyone else except myself. And so it led me to be extremely boisterous at times um, and confident in my voice.
0: That's awesome. Uh, And I have a name for that. I would call you a cheeky girl. Cheeky is a term, I don't think they use that term out in California unless y'all still have Southerners around. But down South, they would use that term cheeky to make you feel bad about Mm. being boisterous. And confident in yourself and your voice. I think that being a cheeky girl is awesome.
1: You know, it's so funny that you say that because my nickname as a kid was cheeks, and uh-uh. I had my cheeks are very. <laughs> I have these high cheekbones, and my mm-hmm. nickname as a kid was cheeks, and so That's- I would I would accept that like all day long. Like, yes, I'm that cheeky girl. Yes. Um, Yeah, I never shied away from being that person who was outspoken enough and comfortable enough that when I saw something that just didn't sit well in my spirit, that I spoke up about it. And so that didn't necessarily mean that it was a direct impact on me, the individual, but people that were around me. And I didn't have to know you to speak up for um, you. Advocacy has just been, you know, something that I've always just innately um, clung to. Um, I also consider myself an alien in that regard because, you know, oftentimes I'm like, Did I just see that? Am I the only one that saw that? Did I hear that correctly? And I'm asking these questions of myself, but at the same time, very rhetorically asking others. Like, you really don't understand that that's a problem. And so let's address these issues and find some solutions.
0: See, I think this is interesting too, though. Coming from California, Oakland has an activist history. Talk to the people about Oakland and its activist history and how how fertile a ground that is
1: very much so I grew up in the 70s um, and so I also like to layer this part of who I am with um, some some backdrop information so my father is a former Vietnam vet when he was discharged he was one of five black officers who were hired by the Richmond Police Department which is a neighboring city in Oakland My mother, on the other hand, was very active in her union and had attended some Black Panther meetings. And so I had lots of literature around my house, images around my house that were Black pride. My father made a very concrete and intentional decision never to wear his police uniform home. He knew the angst between the black community and Mm -hmm. um, the police department. And his perspective was, let me get in and see what I can do to change things. And then if others of us get in, we can really make an impact. But what I will tell you in the 70s is that, unfortunately, his supervising officers were more interested in getting intel about the Black Panthers than they were getting quality Black officers to make change, especially that would impact the Black community. And so he learned very quickly that if he were to um, not do what his superior officer said, um, he would be fired. And uh, ultimately, within a 18 to 24-month period, he was released from the Richmond Police Department, along with the other Black officers that were hired, they found a reason to fire them. And so I shared that story because part of who I am, you know, just the the sheer dichotomy of there being a Black Panther in my household, as well as someone with the police department, that seems like a huge stretch. And like, um, people have told me, Sonia, you need to write that story. But the reality is, both of them were extremely conscious of who they were as Black people. They knew that there were um, problems within the community and that they were systemic. And mm-hmm. so um, they made sure that I knew that, like, we live the creed, I'm Black and I'm proud. Like, I mm-hmm. knew that growing up. I knew that that if something were to happen to me, that I better say something, you know, stand up for myself, or I better come home and let one of my parents know so that they can come and stand up for me. So, yes, very strong activist community from where I'm from. And I know for sure that had it not been for that history and allowing my mom, who, like I said, came from Chicago, where she Mm -hmm. saw um, a very different way of life, where she had this inner strength by growing up in the projects where my father, you know, he and all of his siblings, they were born at home by midwives because they couldn't, you know, black folks at that time couldn't be born in hospitals. And so that's a huge shift in just perspective and trying to embrace and trying to raise children now in a place that is deemed very progressive that California gets this, you know, this descriptor that isn't always the case. Right. And
0: even now I just came back from California last year and I recognized, I was like, it's not what I expected. I thought coming from down South, I expected more of that progressiveness to be overt. And I discovered it wasn't. So how does that, how did that job for your parents? I'm kind of interested in that. How did they, Deal with that, you know, your dad coming from down south, the great state of Texas, which I call it the great state of Texas too, even though I'm not from there. Uh, Your mom coming from Chicago, which is a hard edge city, really nice people, really nice, beautiful city, but it's got a hard edge to it. it. How did they adapt to what they obviously imagined would be a more liberal, more comfortable environment?
1: You know, from what I've been able to gather in conversations with them um, is that we know that even though California is not what we expected when we arrived, it's much better opportunity wise than what we knew would be taking place in like a Chicago or in like a, um, you know, the suburb, I'm sorry, not suburb, but rural area of Texas where my father is from. And so they they leaned on opportunity. They made a decision early on in their young adult lives that they would be, they fall fell into the script of being the model minority, right? Like doing everything right, not drawing attention to yourself. You wanna move on up in this job, do what you know, Mr. Man at the job tells you to do, right? And so that's exactly what they did. And when they got frustrated with the system, I can remember my father coming home and saying, I'm gonna start my own business because um, I know that I, I've been working for the someone else and I'm not getting the recognition or the promotion that I deserve. And so it's one of those things that you feel like you know, both are not good but one has to be better than the other. And I think that that's what they leaned on. I will tell you that um, for the past 30 or so years, my father made a decision that he wanted to retire in Texas and he's been back in Texas after living in California for a good, you know, 30 years. And so that's also testament to, you know, the easy way of life that he knew growing up. Um, You know, this is a kid, a man who grew up picking cotton because cotton fields were still around, you know, during his childhood. And so even though that's the reality that he leans on, he also recognizes that there's a peace in knowing that I'm okay and and I know my place. And so I can go over here where folks don't want me or I can stay in my own little corner of the world and be okay where folks do want me. And so Mm -hmm. that's also a choice.
0: Well, you know, and that's really interesting that you say that because I feel like sometimes there's a lot of judgment against the South and Fair it's mind. not a complete story.
1: Absolutely. You know?
0: um, sometimes you just feel safer and more comfortable in the place you know where to put your feet.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. You know. We are the the proud legacy owners of over a hundred acres of land. Uh, my great 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 grandfather um, was gifted land by a widow white woman in Lone Oak, Texas, and. Um, when her husband died, my my great great grandfather was the help, the you know the the field hand, and he was a sharecropper on her land, and he was the only person that she said that she trusted. Wow. Um, and so when she got sick, she made sure that the deed went in his name, and it has been when I tell you one of the hardest journeys even I've witnessed over the fifty years of my life witnessing the attempts by the city, by the county, by neighbors to take that land from my family. And so when I hear stories like in the media right now, when it comes to black farmers trying to get equity just to stay alive, I recognize that story, story so profoundly when I think about my my um, ancestors, because Chafis was very determined about not just feeding his family, but feeding everyone in his town because he benefited from. So when, for example, when Juneteenth happened, you know, he would have celebrations. We called the land what he called it back then, it's called the nation. And we have a big sign at the front, of, front gate that says the nation but we're not doing anything with it. And, and my hope is now that it's in the hands of my generation um, that we are able to actually benefit from it. But I will tell you that the neighbors, the Smiths to the left and the neighbors, the Johnsons to the right have attempted over you know, the, the several decades to um, change those, um, those lines that say that this is where the property ends and begins. And, and we've had to battle tremendously to keep our land in our family.
0: That's wild, but you know, it's good that people hear this because I think they don't realize that not only was there a concerted effort to keep us from having land to begin with, but then when we had it to try and take it, whether it's by hook or by crook. Right. It's absolutely. really interesting. It's And that's an interesting bit of history for you to be able to share with people. I appreciate that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So
0: it sounds like all of this kind of brings you to where you are today.
1: Absolutely. Oh my goodness, I cannot tell you that there are, I, I can't go a day without thinking about seven-year-old Sonia. So seven-year-old Sonya was a in the um, second grade in Richmond, California and mm-hmm. A couple of things impacted the decision that I made on this particular day, but I had overheard my parents talking about one of my cousins who was me- mentally um, disabled. Um, he was grown by stature, like six foot four, a big towering fellow, dark skin, beautiful chocolate dark skin. The- biggest beautiful smile, had the most heartiest laugh and was just a big kid. Mm -hmm. We played so much with, I mean, all of us kids really loved cousin Carl. And so we looked forward to playing with him because he gave the best piggyback rides. He was that kid that we would go to the park and make grass angels because we don't have snow in the Bay Area. (laughs) Um, Just those kind of things, played video games with things of that nature. And when I was seven, He was killed by the Richmond Police Department when he locked himself out of my aunt's home um, and was kind of going into like a panic manic situation the neighbors that called the police let them, let the police know look we know that he has mental you know deficiencies and that he's really a kid and so we we know that he's distressed because he's balled up in you know on the side of the house and he's just in this underwear and the police showed up and because he didn't understand the directive of you know comply um, he was eventually shot and killed in the middle of the street and so i overheard my parents having this conversation about cousin carl Mm-hmm. And then this was at a time where I was having a lesson at school on the Statue of Liberty. And so I kind of got this idea of what liberty meant. I was now trying to just decompose in my mind what does liberty and justice mean together? And that last line of the Pledge of Allegiance liberty and justice for all, I said to myself, there's no liberty and justice for people who look like me and look like my family and look like my community. And we lived in a very segregated part of California. Again, very Mm -hmm. indicative of my mom's experience growing up in Chicago and very indicative of my father's experience growing up in um, Texas. And so they knew their place, but they knew that they had greater opportunities in California. And so I went to school, didn't tell my parents. And I just refused to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. and I got into a lot of trouble about it, but seven-year-old Sonia, watching her parents be who they were, overhearing conversations about Cousin Carl, um, all led me to make a decision about what I now lean on and say, were my fundamental decisions to one, resist, as well as my fundamental core of who I am when it, when it comes to speaking up. So that's seven-year-old Sonia who like I lean on every day. She is the girl that is the most courageous that I can say, okay, what would Sonia at seven do?
0: That's awesome. You mentioned two things that make me want you to elaborate. Okay. You said two things. You said resist and speak up. Yeah. What does that look like today?
1: So what that looks like today it it shows up when i'm a mommy and i hear you know a teacher who has described one of my boys or another kid in class who just you know they're black kids and and they deserve to learn in a equitable situation and they're described as aggressive and so i'm that parent that will show up to the school with a stack of books and say do your homework before you describe my child as aggressive and so um that's an example. Another example of me showing up to resist is I am the former chapter lead of Black Lives Matter Sacramento. And oh. so resisting, like I said, has been a natural normal thing for me over the years. Um, I participated in the shutdown of the Bay Bridge when Rodney King's um, um, the guilty officers who beat mm-hmm. him were found not guilty. Um, and so it's just, I don't know. Like I said, I, I describe myself as an alien to a, a huge degree because sometimes I feel like I don't fit in and sometimes I'm like, it's like, you know, the, ki- the character on Charlie Brown when he's saying, yeah. like no, the translation it gets lost. And so what do you do except for show up? So I show up at my city council meetings, my board of supervisor meetings, my state capital meetings. I knock on the door, of my state representatives, and I say, hey, we have a bill idea and we need your support in making sure that this comes to pass. And we've been successful in doing that. And so that's how, you know, that shows up today.
0: That's amazing. And I think people overlook that Role of parents, resist. Absolutely, you know. Um, I remember having to step in from my son, where when he was little, I used to just take him and we go do fun stuff. Sometimes, you know, when he was in early childhood, we just yeah. go and do fun stuff and educational stuff and just different things. Hang out and spend time because that time you spend with your children is valuable. Absolutely. But what that meant was he didn't know that he needed to be glued to a desk when he started school. And the teachers tried to tell me, oh, well, he doesn't know how to sit in a desk. He doesn't know how to do this. He doesn't know how to do that. I said, well, you know what? You get to teach him that. Absolutely. Because you thought you knew more than me about what my son needed. You put him in kindergarten when I wanted him in pre-K. So now you get to deal with that. That's your job. You're getting paid. And I'm not going to let you put them in special classes. Right. We don't do that. Right. And I could say it nicely, but it was said. And I think a lot of parents step up for their kids in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. And then they're vilified for that.
1: Absolutely.
0: How did the schools respond when you stepped up for your kids?
1: You know, it's very interesting because I lean on, you know, my mom who was definitely an advocate for me. So when seven year old Sonya, it was finally discovered. It took, I, I really took the bullet. I was I was willing to be as stubborn as Miss Bill, you was willing to be mean, right? <laughs> And so every day that I would show up, I would sit there with the Pledge of Allegiance and she would send me out the classroom. And then at lunchtime and at recess time, she would make me write on the chalkboard, um, the Pledge of Allegiance is a part of my culture. And I can remember refusing to do that. And it took her a good two weeks to even send me to the principal. And I really thank my principal who was a young progressive white woman who was newly hired at my school. Miss Bilyeu, who was my teacher was the oldest relic. I call her a relic. Um, At that school and she kind of thought that she can run things regardless of what the principal said She was the one that was telling folks what to do and how to do it and she stood on that platform She was like this is mine and I earned it and I deserve it And so miss Reno had to navigate how to really assert her power as as principal Mm -hmm. but it took two weeks or me to get to the office, that means it took two weeks for the information to get home to my parents because I grew up in a time where, you know, you don't go to school to embarrass mommy and daddy. They don't right. come to the school for you, you it better be good. Right. And so I was extremely pleasantly surprised when my mother showed up at school, that her advocacy, her conversation with Miss Reno that I overheard was, I don't know what I'm going to do with this child. If this is what she's doing at seven, Like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this child, but I'm going to stand right beside her in this situation. And so I will also tell you that Miss Bill, you ended up retiring that school year. When I gave my sixth grade graduation speech, Miss Reno was still around. And she said, I will never forget this little girl, because when she was seven, (laughs) she made a teacher retire. And that's how she introduced me. But so I lean on the fact that my mom always showed up for me and I made sure that when I send my children out of the house and I was blessed to have six black beautiful baby boys and I saw what my black male counterparts had to do, go through in the school system. And I was determined not on my watch. You will not do my babies the way that I've seen my counterparts get treated. And so I knew and I tell parents still to this day, You might not want to believe everything that your kids tell you about being treated unfairly at school, but you need to listen. Because nine times out of 10, what I can tell you as an educator and I've been in the classroom for 20 years that the system is rigged against black boys and black girls. They adultify black girls in a way that makes them responsible for things that they shouldn't and then they don't have that quality um, childhood. And then secondly, for black boys, they show up in spaces and they're called things like aggressive and um, just treated as as villains and treated um, as thugs. And so we have to look at why are so many of our kids the ones being ushered on that school to prison pipeline. And so when I show up now, because I have so many kids that have gone through, my husband and I have been very intentional, send our kids to the same school so that not for the benefit of my kids, but for the benefit of that school. Because when you see Miss Lewis's name on on a piece of paper or a letter or an email that's coming, they know exactly what they gonna get. They know that this is gonna be a parent that is going to stand up tooth and nails to whatever the issue, if I see a problem, I'll give you an example, during COVID, my fifth grader last year, um, his teacher was teaching about Columbus. And my 10th um, grader, he came in he and he was so excited. He was like, mom, you will not believe what Idris's teacher said. She said that Columbus was a good guy. And it was like, you can just sense all of the joy because he knew that I was about to really have it. I was about to have this teacher and spit, chew her up and spit her out. And I don't want my kids to have the perception that that's the way that I'm going to address every situation. But I want them to know that when something wrong and erroneously is being taught, that I, as a parent, have a right to vocalize my opinion about it. And so I was like, Miss Miss Teacher, I'm, I'm this is Idris's mom. And let's have a conversation because there was nothing good about someone who murdered and ge- created genocide um, and perpetuated a system of slavery through colonization in this country. And she, to her defense, she was like, I'm so sorry, Ms. Lewis. I was saying it being sarcastic. Um, I was like, well, I don't think fifth graders understand your sarcasm. And so we had to have that conversation. But that's just an example of how I show up. And it might intimidate some folks, and I don't care. And <laughs> at the end of the day, if the point is to make sure that there's equity for all students, we have to, as parents, show up and speak up for them and believe them when they say something wrong is happening to them.
0: Well, and I think that's really interesting too, because there was a time, and you'll hear older educators complain about this. There was a time where if the teacher said something, the parent just went with whatever the teacher said.
1: Yep, and that was my parents.
0: I I think I've also gotten to the point, well, I have, I have grown kids now, so I don't have to worry about this anymore. But when I had my kids in school, if I got a call from a teacher about something that was inconsequential, I'm like, Would you even be calling about this if it were another kid? Like literally one day, my son threw a piece of ice, trying to hit the garbage can, missed it. It went on the side of the can. He went and picked it up and threw it in the can. I got a call about the piece of ice. I'm like, is this really worth calling me on my job for? I don't understand. And when you realize that they're doing these things to the black children in particular, black boys. I did. I never felt like I had to worry about my daughters in quite the same way. Yeah. But my son, I was like, uh-uh, we're not gonna do this. Right. <laughs> we right. are not gonna do this. And that advocacy is so important. So what does that advocacy look like when we are advocating? Obviously when we advocate for our kids, that can help all of the kids.
1: Absolutely.
0: But have there been moments where you said You know, I need to really step up for the entire community.
1: Absolutely. And so as a teacher, I spent 17 years in the traditional classroom. Um, And I cannot tell you that at the beginning of every school year, I took a, you know, a look around and said, who's in my classroom? I wanna make sure that all of their lived experiences and cultures are represented in my classroom. And luckily, because I taught history um, and social studies, that was an easy thing to do. But I would challenge any educator. I don't care what subject you teach. If it's math, you can find you know, um, mathematicians that are Black, Latinx, and API. You can do that, hands down, right? We just have to do a little bit of you know, digging in extra work to make sure that the kids that are in your classroom feel like they, the mirror is theirs, even if the mirror is not you. And so that's part of that advocacy piece that I think that all educators need to make a commitment to. Secondly, um, in, in advocating for all students, I, I make sure that when we're talking about the groups that are disenfranchised, and disenfranchised doesn't always mean it's, it's race-related, right? It can be that it's the poor students that are coming from socially economic Um, backgrounds that are disenfranchised. It can mean that there are um, students who are in the foster care system. It can mean a wide variety of things. It can mean that mom is a single mom and she's working two and three jobs and she just doesn't have the support mechanisms in place to create a village around said child. I can remember that I had a student in San Francisco. She was in the foster care system. She was living with her grandmother and they were like barely making it. And she would tell me oftentimes, And now this was a student, she was a scholar. She like had straight A's, um, beautiful little black girl. And she would come to school hungry. And I would always make sure that I had extra snacks. I'd be like, just go to that drawer right there. You ain't got to say nothing to me. You don't have to bring attention to yourself so that other people know what your business is. Go Mm -hmm. to that drawer and get whatever you need. And you don't ever have to worry about that. So those I think are ways in which that teachers and educators and administrators and counselors, whoever you are on any school campus around this country, you can build relationship with students because you impact them in a way, when they look in the mirror, they wanna one feel like they belong, right? And Mm -hmm. then secondly, they they wanna feel as though someone cares about them. And so that's, I think is an, an extension of what advocacy can look like when we're talking about equity in the education system.
0: Yeah, well, and what about um, working with the parents?
1: Oh, crucial, crucial. Like you can't, you can't, as an educator, be scared of the stereotypes that you've been fed and conditioned about certain parent groups, right? Um, so, like, I when I legitimately say yes, I know that there are some teachers and staff members at my kids' elementary school who are intimidated when I show up, and so most of the times I'm going, I get what I want because I come. Not because I'm coming to scare or bully anyone, but because I come with facts. And I put you on notice that these are my expectations and I'm establishing clear cut boundaries as to what it looks like to educate my children. And if you educate my children and they are winning, I promise you that every other kid in that classroom and when other parents see me coming, that that, it's going to give them some gumption, some guts, some, you know, fortitude to say, oh, I can say that about my child because my kid is experiencing these things as well. And so that's what I, 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 I attempt in my endeavors and showing up in school spaces. Now I am a you know, educational consultant. When I left teaching, um, I still was called by parents and, and um, students alike. Can you help me with my transition from high school? Because this is what mm-hmm. we're known for doing. And so I started my business around equity. But I will also tell you when I graduated from high school, I graduated with a 3.98 GPA. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a salutatorian of my graduating high school class. I uh, ended up in Atlanta at Spelman College and Mm -hmm. I failed my my freshman entrance exams and I was devastated. I had never failed at anything in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was devastated. And then it caused me to have a reflection on the education system in California, right? And so I started to do my homework, like where does California fall in line with education? And it has always been in the lower third of where students are producing. And so my goal has always been going into teaching that I'm going to impact students who look just like 18 year old Sonia when she graduated high school. And so that's what I do fundamentally on a day-to-day basis. Like right now we're in a teach-in and I'm um, teaching students age five to 18 on financial literacy over our summer program. And what that means is they are learning about things that impact their day-to-day lives. So they're learning about food sovereignty. They're learning about how to start a business in their black communities based on the problems in their communities. And then finally they're learning about the stock market. And at the end of our program, we're gifting every scholar with a hundred dollars to invest in one of those things. That's and so easy. that's that's my give back. You know, that's a way that I stay connected to the education system. And then on the the flip side of it, the way I get paid on a regular basis is I go into educational organizations and we talk about setting up the most equitable ways to bring um, transparency and acknowledge that racism is a thing, especially in the education arena.
0: That's amazing. I love the work that you're doing, especially with the kids. I mean, well, no. And part of the reason it's so important that we have good businesses in our communities is not everything can be a pawn shop a nail salon and a hair salon. You know, it can't just be that, you know, our hair supply. And we need viable businesses in basic stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: Socks and t-shirts.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, grocery stores. All kinds of things that we need in our communities that we just don't see. We don't need any more liquor stores. We got plenty of those. Right. You've been in Atlanta. You know what I'm talking about.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You go to a Compton or Oakland here in California, you'll find the exact same thing. Yeah, that that's crucial. So I'm having students look at business, starting business from the sense of what are the problems in our community? And can we say that we are genius enough because we've done it multiple times? We did it on the slave plantation, right? Yes. We had to figure out who was who and who was responsible for what to make sure that this slave community is good to protect mm-hmm. ourselves. When we were freed by the emancipation, we then set up black cities all all over this country because mm-hmm. we were told that we couldn't be in an integrative space. So we set up Black Wall Streets and, and I would argue to anyone that there was more than a Tulsa, Oklahoma as a Black Wall Street. There were several Tulsa, Oklahomas mm-hmm. um, all over this country with doctors and lawyers and grocery store owners and every business that you can think of under the sun. And so I'm while I, in my mind, because I have a history background, want to reinvent what we know and reimagine what we know of a Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, the reality is 400 years past the time that the first documented slaves came to this country. And since the Emancipation Proclamation, we can say for sure that there have been concerted efforts lodged towards the Black community to prevent them from access to success. And so why not rely on ourselves to keep the Black dollar in the Black community? Because the Asian community does it, the Latinx community does it, the Jewish community does it. Why can't we? And so that's the question that I propose to my community and folks that I am around. It's, we can do this. We have been geniuses. We built this country, like not just on our backs and our blood, sweat, and tears. Black women breastfed white babies, you know, to, yep. to live. And so, if we understand that reality you know there's nothing that we can't accomplish and I would also add that even in this pandemic state of being that we have had to live through that mm-hmm. that should have proved our gut um, that we have we are survivors we are okay. so resilient um, in a way that no one can deny us access because we have the fortitude to do it for ourselves
0: That's beautiful. I love your message. I love the work that you're doing. Tell the people, how can they connect with you and your, your organization?
1: Absolutely. So Ascribe Educational Consulting is my LLC. That's my for-profit business. And I am a um, anti-racism impact strategist by day. And then my nonprofit and my heart work is Edify Humanity 501c3. And that's where we create programming for young people in community to help them leverage who they are. And you can find us at Ascribe, A-S-C-R-I-B-E success.com, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. And so that's where we are. And we are just here to make sure that the voices of those who are most vulnerable and fragile in community get heard.
0: Well, I cannot thank you enough for the work that you do there in Oakland, but it fans out across the world. That's literally what happens when we put our hearts and souls into work that helps to make things more equitable for everyone. Yeah. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And thank you for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barrard.
1: I appreciate it. And let me just leave you with this one antidote or this one like call to action that I've been living by by this, this entire year is that I my mission right now is to uh, reclaim and acquire all of the things our ancestors were denied but deserve. And I wanna do that so that future generations have an opportunity to thrive and not just survive. And so that's our call of action. If you are in a position of privilege and power in whatever way that you live, work, play, make sure that you're making decisions that will impact those who have less privilege than you.
0: That's beautiful. And that is 100% right and just and fair. Thank you.
1: Thank you.